You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. Hey, 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 episode 102. Today's episode is going to be a little bit of a different format, and we're going to be answering some listener questions. Now, historically, when you've sent questions, I've kind of stuck them into other podcast episodes to answer the question, but as part of a broader context. And a lot of the questions that I've been getting recently are really incredible questions that are pretty much standalone. So I've chosen a couple to talk about today. Um, I've chosen three, actually. And... What I'm hoping to do is to continue to do some version of this every once in a bit because you guys have incredible questions. So whether it's something that you've been wondering about for a long time and just don't really know who to ask, or you've been asking like (laughs) every single person you see and you want another take on it or somebody with my background's take on it, send it my way. And you can for sure send it any way that you have been sending it, which is responding to my newsletter or DMs on Instagram. But if you want me to see it right away and know exactly what it's for, send it directly to my email at rachelheineman.com and put in the subject line, podcast listener question. And I will be sure to answer it on the podcast in a future listener question style episode. Okay, so the first question is talking about levels of care. So a lot of you are in treatment, you know, most typically you're in outpatient treatment. So you're working with a therapist, maybe also a dietitian and a doctor and a psychiatrist, but most of you are in outpatient treatment. Some of you have either had experience or are debating going to a higher level of care, whether that's an intensive outpatient or a partial hospitalization program, residential or a hospital, and you might not really know how to choose. Now, I did an episode a bit ago, a while ago, and I can link to that about the different levels of care, what they all mean, what they focus on, so that you can listen to that as an addendum to this, if this is something that you're wondering about. But the question was mostly about, or the combination of questions that I've got that I'm just sort of going to combine all of them is about how to choose a level of care given your individual circumstance that people might be telling you to go to a higher level of care based on where you're at. But there are so many different factors, not necessarily which place you choose, but is that the right decision for you? And how do you make that decision? Now, I come from this from the perspective of I used to be somebody I hope used to be somebody that was a little bit more clear cut on this kind of stuff. Like we've been working together for X amount of time. This is not working. You need a higher level of care. Ideally, X level of care based on your symptoms. This is my professional opinion. Can we talk about this? Can we figure it out? Obviously, like not authoritative 
sectarian in it, but, you know, this is what's indicated. But I think I've sort of moved away from that after hearing a lot of your accounts and my my people's accounts of their experience with higher level of care and how it has impacted them. I think for the most part, what an ideal situation is, is somebody is really suffering and needs more care than the almost no-brainer choice would be to go to a higher level of care because they need more support that'll jumpstart the process and you come back and you're good to go with your outpatient team. You just had that sort of like little boost. In the beginning, that's obviously very hard work, but to make the process a little bit less rocky and then we reap the benefits later. But obviously, and you all know this, like people are in and out of treatment centers. Treatment centers are not necessarily the right fit depending on whether it's a specific treatment center or just the entire vibe for some people. But also what I'm not saying is that I'm the kind of person who tries to, quote, keep people out of the hospital. And I only say that, quote, because there are people that I've interacted with that like that is their thing at all costs. We must keep you out of higher level of care. Um, Very often this happens with people in the ultra-Orthodox community where it's like, you know, there might be other consequences of going to something that's outside of the community, which I totally understand and respect. But their stance, almost in the same way that I was, you should go to higher level of care, their stance is you should not. And I think what we all have to take into account is that that is never the case. And even using the word never... It's rarely the case. We have to be so much more nuanced in our decision about how we make choices about higher level of care. And of course, there's all different levels of care depending on how far you want to go on any side of the continuum. So, you know, I think when we use this analogy of like, oh, if you had cancer, you would do literally anything that you can to treat this cancer. You have to drop everything. You have to drop out of school. You have to quit your job. You have to leave your family and and do do this treatment which is not untrue, but there are other circumstances. And I think that we also have to asterisk this with something along the lines of people using their circumstances as, I don't want to say excuses, that sounds like they're kind of doing it as like an intentional thing, but people using it as a little bit of a cover-up or a hide-behind, this is really, really difficult because... I'm married, I'm in school, I have work, I it's too expensive. All of these things are obviously incredibly valid. And is there something else that is making you not want to go that like the finances are, are really just taking front and center and it's not front and center? I think when we have these conversations about what do you hope for from higher level of care? What do you hope for from outpatient? And what are you trying to avoid? Or what is scary about navigating the idea of going to a higher level of care are all questions that we have to ask when you're confronted with a choice of what do I do? I also think that we have to take into account people's past experiences with treatment because, and and this is a a question that has come up uh, a lot in recent conversation about MAID, which is medical assistance in dying. And we're probably going to do an episode later, but I was on the panel for IDEP New York. I was actually, no, I was totally untrue. I was not on the panel. I was the moderator. And uh, conversations about harm reduction in that there are so many people who are in and out and in and out and in and out of treatment. And that is traumatic in and of itself because of their personal encounters with higher levels of care. And if this is a person who has been 
to a higher level of care many times, prescribing it again is probably going to be counterintuitive for whatever reason. But I think part of the question is, what are my goals and how am I going to get there? So if your goal is to really conquer this eating disorder and not so much like a harm reduction, let me just like get whatever it is that I need done now so I can survive the next day or week is a very different conversation in terms of goals. We have to think about uh, what are your obligations and what are the consequences of leaving your obligations, whether it's kids, relationship, school, work, the finances that we talked about. What are the consequences of leaving them or, you know, putting yourself in a financial hole or, you know, not necessarily knowing how you're going to pay for it? Those are all really serious questions that we have to ask that we can't just put a blanket statement or prescription on somebody's symptoms and say, you must choose a higher level of care. So I think, obviously, this is a frustrating thing to hear that it depends, but I think all those questions really need to be asked. And then once you figure out that perhaps it might be a good thing for you to do a higher level of care, to figure out, okay, what is the right level of care for me? Again, you can listen to that previous episode and what might be the best place to go, which is outside of the scope of this question, But I really do think that we have to tease apart what is actually a really, really big deal and something that is going to have pretty significant consequences and something that we might be hiding behind when we don't want to go to higher level of care. So it is not a one-size-fits-all, and it is the kind of thing that you have to be brutally honest with you and your team and your loved ones about the whys behind everything Really, really, really brutally honest. Okay. The next question is about kids. And I don't typically treat kids. I don't really ever treat kids. But I thought the question was a heavy one and an important one to talk about. It was basically the idea of a kid that's, quote, overweight, whatever we want, whatever word we want to use for being in a larger body. And, uh, you know, perhaps we can work toward division of responsibility or intuitive eating all beyond the scope of this question. Body image stuff, meaning like body acceptance stuff and and all that is very nice. But what happens when at the end of the day, the kid is being teased at school or wherever they're being teased? And what do we do with that as weight inclusive providers? What what do we even think about that? This one is heavy just because oh, it breaks my heart. When we think about kids, when I think about kids, I think about how innocent and beautiful they are with this blank slate of whatever their experiences are going to be is writing how their mental wellness, in essence, is going to be later on. And when a kid is being teased, I mean, like that is just a horrific situation. And and I say that mostly because it does incredible damage for this kid's self-esteem and for their mental wellness later on. That if I'm working with a 31-year-old woman and she's talking about when she was seven and she was teased and this has continued to stay with her in some sort of post-trauma way, this is so heartbreaking to witness when the kid is actually experiencing it. I think, though, the problem with saying, okay, fine, you're being teased for your weight. Perhaps we can try to do something that is not in a super harmful, restrictive way, but in some way to try to bring your weight down so that you're not teased. 
And I think that, you know, when when we're thinking about a kid issue, it's more apparent issue or a family issue than the kid if we're talking about a seven, eight, nine-year-old. Um, and certainly no kid should ever, ever be brought to a nutritionist. And for sure not the nutritionist that that my people talk about, like unlicensed, undietitian uh people. But and, and perhaps if they already have a raging eating disorder, uh, perhaps the dietitian question is this piece goes out the window. We probably should not be talking to kids in directly about changing their weight, even if it, that is something that you subscribe to. That changing their body will probably help them and therefore help them at school and their self-esteem and their interpersonal relationships. If that is something that you subscribe to, then that is a family change. That is something that needs to be probably outside of the scope of the awareness of the kid or really any of the kids in the family. If you wanted to start cooking for your family as opposed to getting takeout every single night, that's on you as a parent to change. But it certainly can never be put on the kid. I'm not even only talking about a conversation, but the responsibility the burden of this, even even the topic, cannot be put on the kid. But I think the larger issue with prescribing any form of weight loss, whether it's something that we hand to them or we sort of try to do behind their back, is that, oh, this thing that you're being bullied about, all we have to do is take it away and then you won't be bullied, which teaches them that when you face adversity, you need to change something about yourself and then you'll be able to face whatever it is, which very often is not the case with kids being teased. I mean, this is really a classic teasing question as opposed to a weight question. We can't change the kid whose parents are getting divorced or the kid who has glasses or whatever in the world kids are teasing each other about these days. A lot of those things we cannot change. And so... When we deal with a kid in that situation, we need to provide support, obviously significant consequences for the bully or for the bully and uh, bringing their parents in. That's that's another, a whole nother thing. But when a kid comes home and tells you that they're being bullied or teased, we need to meet them with open arms, with full support, with love, sure, taking action with the school, but to know that adversity happens and you're going to be okay. I'm going to be here for you. I am not shaming you. I am not making you feel guilty about anything. I love you. And in the face of adversity, we are strong and we feel terrible in it, but we are together. And if that is the message that you can provide to your kids, whether or not they're being teased or teased for their weight, then you have provided your kid with the most valuable emotional lesson that you can possibly teach them about resilience. And this comes from a place of you being comfortable with whatever your kid looks like. And so this idea of full, complete compassion and acceptance needs to come from you. Okay, the third and the last question is a question about ARFID, which is avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder? Is that even, am I remembering this? My brain is on brain fog today. But basically it's the eating disorder that is not necessarily revolving around the desire for weight loss or the fear of weight gain. It's a little bit more of food aversions. And and typically we diagnose ARFID in kids who are extreme picky eaters and then not meeting their growth chart, whatever the, the marks. But it can happen with adults also, you know, 
the fear of vomiting, the uh, an adverse experience with food. There are a couple of different iterations of this, but it's not their their restrictive eating disorder. It is not based in the fear of gaining weight. So the question is, how is the treatment for ARFID different than, say, any of the other eating disorders? And I guess maybe to add like a little asterisk is specifically with my background of treatment that I'm not like super behavioral. I'm much more, okay, how do we look at the larger picture? And I guess in that is my answer. Obviously, this is not going to be a class on how do you treat ARFID. But I think when we come at anybody who is sitting in front of us or anybody that is, you know, our loved ones or our friends that is struggling with any form of an eating disorder, part of this is wondering, where is this coming from? What is keeping it present currently? What is maintaining it? And what is this person afraid of letting go? And Perhaps it is not the weight gain piece, but there is something else. There are fears attached. And I think in essence, the treatment doesn't look that different because a lot of it is inquiring about what is this like for you and what is your fear and what happens when that happens. All the questions we ask about weight loss, weight gain, people's body image, we ask the exact same questions they're just related to something else. And of course, in tandem with working with a dietitian and really challenging this person to increase their intake and, and uh, you know increase their exposure of foods that are fearful based on you know starting small and then growing from there. So obviously the behavioral piece is going to be very similar. But in terms of really understanding what it's about, we can try to inquire when it started. When the person gets triggered, when it gets worse, when it takes a little bit more of a backseat, what their relationship to their emotions is like, because ultimately an eating disorder is a way to regulate emotions. And so all of these things that we talk about on this podcast related to eating disorders that are very connected with the fear of weight gain will apply here too, because they're very open-ended questions, very exploratory questions. I think once we fall into the trap of this is the treatment for this type of person or this type of diagnosis, then we've already failed the person in front of us. That there is no one way to look at it. There is no one way to treat it. There is one way to be curious. And I think that is going to be the most valuable asset when we are working with somebody who has a little bit of a different form of an eating disorder. Look at the person ask the why, wonder why, even if you're not asking, and then go from there. All right. So like I said, if you have any more questions, please send them to me, subject line, podcast, listener question, and I will be sure to answer them in the next listener question podcast episode. I will see you all in the next episode. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.